This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good evening. Good evening and once again welcome. And I promise for the last time today my name is Chip Flacker and I am the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the concluding session of our uh, International Day conference uh, here at Stanford. Uh, and I can think of no more pleasant duty than to introduce to you this evening uh, the Honorable Warren Christopher, who will, in turn, introduce tonight's keynote speaker. As I think virtually everyone in this room knows, Secretary Christopher has had a long, varied, and truly illustrious career in both the public and the private sectors. To mention only the highlights, literally, as Deputy Attorney General during the Johnson administration, he advised the President on whether or not to dispatch and to use federal troops to quell civil disturbances. As President Carter's Deputy Secretary of State, he led the negotiations that culminated in the freeing of 52 U.S. hostages in Iran, for which he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award. As chairman of the Independent Commission on the Los Angeles Police Department, he investigated a police force gone awry and proposed significant reforms that were approved overwhelmingly in a public referendum. For this work, Secretary Christopher was awarded the first Civic Medal of Honor by the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. As the 63rd Secretary of State, Secretary Christopher helped the world cope with Yitzhak Rabin's assassination in 1995 and worked relentlessly on, among other projects, peace in the Middle East. He was, in fact, the invisible presence behind the memorable handshake of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and PLO Chairman Arafat uh, over the January 1997 peace accord on the West Bank town of Hebron. Upon leaving public service in 1997, Secretary Christopher rejoined the law firm with which he has been so long associated, O'Melveny and Myers, as senior partner, and he continues to be involved uh, in a wide array of both domestic and international matters. He is the author of two books in the stream of history, Shaping Foreign Policy for a New Era, which I use in several of my courses, and Chances of a Lifetime, which, if you haven't read it yet, is a sheer delight. A graduate of Stanford University Law School, Secretary Christopher also served with distinction as president of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University. Ladies and gentlemen, again, it is my distinct pleasure uh, to welcome back to this campus, one of Stanford's most distinguished alums, the Honorable Warren Christopher.
Good evening. It's wonderful to be here at the end of a terrific day. I think we've all enjoyed uh, not only the hospitality but the intellectual interest that has uh, been evoked by this terrific program. Uh, the National Security Advisor is one of the most powerful officials in Washington, D.C. Now, it wasn't intended that way when Congress passed the National Security Act in 1947, but that offer offices rapidly grown in power and prestige. Many of us who have worked in Washington, and there are a number that I look out over this room that have done so, many of us who have been there in Washington have just marveled at the steady accretion of power in the White House vis-a-vis -vis the other agencies and departments in Washington. Perhaps Secretary Rice, with her famous closeness to the President, will be able to reverse that trend, but not for long, I think. Our speaker tonight, Sandy Berger, spent eight vital years at the vortex of that enormous power. For four years, between 1993 and 1997, uh, as Deputy National Security Advisor, he chaired the powerful Deputies Committee and, as such, was in charge of many aspects of our foreign policy. And then in the four subsequent years, 1997 to 2001, Sandy was President Clinton's National Security Advisor, and in that role he was rightly described by the New York Times as the most powerful holder of that particular job since it was held by Henry Kissinger. Many of you in the room have worked with Sandy, and those of us who did know that he was highly esteemed in the foreign affairs world for many reasons. First, because he was collegial and not arrogant. He led by dint of a razor-sharp mind and very hard work. And he had an innate strategic sense that served his country very well. Just to take two examples, he took the lead in achieving common purpose to an unusual degree and an unusual consensus on the use of force, first in Bosnia and then in Kosovo. And Sandy manages the diplomatic aftermath of the Indian and Pakistani nuclear tests in a way that made it possible for President Clinton to mediate a crisis in that region that could easily have gone nuclear. A graduate of Cornell and Harvard Law School, before going into government, Sandy practiced law in the leading Washington firm of Hogan and Hartson, where he chaired the international group. After leaving government in 2001, Sandy formed Stonebridge International, a highly successful strategic advisory group of which she is the chairman. Throughout many speeches and articles, Sandy has been a widely admired spokesman in the field of international affairs. It's really our great good luck, I think, to have Sandy here tonight to close this marvelous conference to talk about United States foreign policy, the road ahead. Sandy. Thank you, Chair. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Chris. That was very kind. I should sit down. Quit while I'm ahead. It's a great privilege to be introduced by Warren Christopher, who I consider to be someone who personifies the gold standard of public service. It was a privilege to serve with him 
and it certainly is an honor to be introduced by him. He sets a worthy, Stanford, a worthy standard for the latest Stanford Secretary of State, uh, Dr. Rice. I, I guess now Stanford has the job every 20 years. <laughs> so I assume somewhere in this room, one of your students, Chip, is probably a you know, Secretary of State around 2024. And uh, he's still calling you for advice. President Hennessy, Chip Blacker, who served with me at the NSC and provided a, a clear sense of direction and calm leadership uh, when on, on our policy towards Russia, when surrounded by some very strong and powerful figures. I mean, one of Chip's jobs as director of the national of, of, of the Russia department at the National Security Council was controlling Larry Summers. I mean, that really makes you qualified for almost any kind of job that you have eventually. I'm honored to be part of what uh, I hope is just the first of many uh, international days at Stanford. It's great to see friends like Bill Perry who many, and I'm among them, would say is the outstanding Secretary of, State, Secretary of Defense of our generation, Hans Blix. I don't know if Phil Zellico is here, is still here, uh, who did such a great job, Phil, as uh, uh, the driving force, really, in the 9-11 report. Uh, and many more, uh, and to spend some time with the students and faculty of this great university. It's been 120 years since Leland Stanford's founding grant, decreeing that the school that bore his name would promote the public welfare by exercising an influence on behalf of humanity and civilization. And Stanford is fulfilling that mission every day with its focus on interdisciplinary research, exemplified by this exciting institute and your new international initiative, its revolutionary advances in areas from technology to heart transplants, and also I've read some less conventional approaches to promoting the public welfare, like stress-relieving measures from fountain hopping to primal screen, which I can tell you we can use in Washington very often. Tonight, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about U.S. foreign policy. I've called my remarks the road ahead, but let me begin with some brief observations about the road we've already traveled. Since that frightful morning of September 11, 2001, our foreign policy has been marked by a few dominant features. First, the war against terrorism appropriately has become our overriding strategic priority. We smashed the Taliban, we crushed al-Qaeda's training camps, and we continue to take the fight to the terrorists. Though I think it is important to understand this battle is far from over. We broke the beehive, but we hardly killed all the bees, and indeed they are multiplying. There were more terrorist attacks worldwide last year than any year 
before 9-11. Then the president stretched the boundaries of the war on terrorism to encompass rogue states that could provide weapons of mass destruction to terror groups and at the same time elevated preemption from an option all presidents have reserved to a defining doctrine of American strategy. Based on this confection and erroneous intelligence about WMD, America invaded Iraq and ousted Saddam Hussein's regime. Now, as President Bush's second term gets underway, we have raised the banner of advancing democracy across the globe, though how we unfurl that banner in practice is still to be seen. Many of these policies and principles behind them I agree with. In Al-Qaeda and other anti-American Islamic jihadists, we face a mortal enemy. We must find and destroy them before they destroy us. And we must do a far better job than we have so far to protect the security of our homeland from almost certain future attack, as has been described in the 9-11 report. And while I disagreed with the administration about the urgency of the situation in Iraq, we should all agree that we and the world now have an overriding interest in establishing stability and security there. The next eight months, between now and the end of the year, will be decisive. Will we see the emergence of a functioning Iraqi government able to confront the insurgency with determination and effectiveness, or fractioning Iraq descending into civil war or radicalism. I think the outcome still hangs in the balance. I also welcome the administration's embrace of democracy and freedom around the world. I too subscribe to the fundamental thesis that countries with genuine liberal democracy are more likely to create opportunities for their people more likely to be good neighbors, and less likely to be breeding grounds of extremism that pose a threat to uh, all of us. I also believe that encouraging democracy is a vital component of the struggle against jihadism, because al-Qaeda and their kindred spirits don't need a free press or freedom of association to organize and spread their message. But the moderate secular opposition in countries struggling with extremism does. But my concern today is that central as terrorism and Iraq must be on our agenda. We are so preoccupied with these priorities that it's as if we, have, we are wearing blinders to other priorities. I believe it's time to widen the aperture on our outlook to the world, to other threats facing us here and now, and to those looming on the horizon. It's very dangerous to have tunnel vision in a global world. And right now, in my judgment, we're failing to adequately address some issues that are critical to the future safety, prosperity, and well-being of our people. Let me focus on five of those challenges. Most urgent is the very real threat of a nuclear weapons nightmare. I fear that the pendulum that swung against nuclear weapons in the past 20 years, from Chile to Brazil to South Korea, South Africa, Ukraine, 
Kazakhstan, Taiwan, and others who gave up their programs now is swinging back the other way. It used to be to, that having a national airline was sufficient to claim uh, to be a real uh, international power. It appears now that nuclear weapons have become the new bellwether. The danger is no more clear and present than in North Korea, a subject that has no more passionate advocate than my friend Bill Perry. Indeed, I'm convinced that nuclear proliferation from North Korea is the most serious threat America faces today. The nuclear material, and perhaps bombs, being made in North Korea today can wind up in the hands of terrorists and become our nightmare in San Francisco or New York or Moscow or London. Yet we wasted over three years since North Korea kicked out the international monitors who were enforce, enforcing a supervised freeze we negotiated in 1994 over their plutonium facilities. While we have been debating the shape of the table over the past three years, Pyongyang has reprocessed plutonium, enough to make four to six new weapons. And unlike Iraq, North Korea has a proven history of selling dangerous weapons to bad actors. It's, it can become their cash crop. Now we have the worst of all worlds. Multi-party talks that are stuck in the mud, North Korea making both uranium and plutonium, and the United States, not North Korea, increasingly isolated. We have no more time to lose. It's time, in my judgment, to move beyond process and deal directly with North Korea. We should tell them starkly, if you verifiably give up your nuclear weapons program, you can rejoin the world economically and politically. But if you don't, a nuclear weapons Walmart in an area of global terrorism simply is unacceptable, and America and our allies will act to prevent it. Because only if we engage seriously with North Korea to seek a verifiable deal, and North Korea still moves forward with its nuclear program, only then will our essential partners, China, Japan, and South Korea, stand with us if tougher economic or other steps are required. Our second great challenge is the widening gap between the world's haves and have-nots, and the impact it has both on human suffering and global instability. We can all feel proud of the way this country responded to the Asian tsunami, from the efforts of former President Bush and Clinton to the 15 civil and engineering students here at Stanford, who I understand have devised a water filtration system that they will bring to tsunami victims this summer. But the fact is, there are metaphorical tsunamis sweeping to shore, to shore all around us every day. 20,000 people die every day because they're too poor to survive. 20,000. Succumbing to diseases for which cures have long existed and starving in a world where America spends $47 million every year on Twinkies alone. Can we really accept that in an age of unparalleled resources, 
more than one billion people still live on less than one dollar a day. Or that by 2010, more than 40 countries, including Russia and much of sub-Saharan Africa, are projected to have lower life expectancy than they did in 1990. The United States has increased its aggregate resources on fighting poverty, and that's good. But as a proportion of GNP, that is what we can afford, we're the stingiest donor in the developed world. And when the world sees us spending $300 billion to fund our efforts in Iraq, while we offer all of sub-Saharan Africa roughly $5 billion a year in development, which, to put it in its perspective, as I understand, half the size of Stanford's endowment. It's not hard to grasp part of the reason we are too often resented in the world. I am not suggesting that more money is the only answer to this problem. It must be tied to reform and good governance from the recipient countries. But clearly, more money is part of the answer as it has been since the 1970s, when the United States first committed development assistance of 0.7% of our GNP, a goal we've never met through Democratic and Republican administrations. In 2002, President Bush announced his Millennium Challenge account with the goal of raising U.S. aid levels $5 billion a year by fiscal year 2006, but so far Congress has drastically underfunded the account, and for all the fanfare, only Madagascar has made it through the pipeline. Surely America must do better. It is a moral imperative, and it is a practical necessity. A world where billions of people are denied the nutrition, health care, and opportunities we take for granted, will be an increasingly angry, turbulent, and dangerous place for all of us. The third area where I see worrisome neglect is preparing to deal with the major shifts of our geopolitical landscape. If you could sit on Mars and look down on the Earth and look at the socio and economic changes taking place, you would see a tectonic shift of power going on from west to east. And with shifts of power, economic power, come shifts in political influence. Last year, China's economy accounted for a tenth of all global growth. On the one hand, it's become America's third largest trading partner. On the other, it's become a formidable economic competitor. Its insatiable consumption of Resources has affected the prices of everything from soybeans to petroleum. And most forecasts suggest that by 2020, China's GDP, GNP, will be the second largest in the world. Forecasts also predict that by 2020, China and India together are expected to be home to some 2.7 billion people, roughly one-third of all mankind. We must work to proactively shape our future with Asia, not simply react to new realities. America cannot neglect our transatlantic responsibilities, but as you 
know sitting here at Stanford. America is a great Pacific power. But because we have been preoccupied by Iraq and terrorism, I see the fulcrum of power and influence in this region moving from Pacific Basin, a Pacific Basin focus to a China-centric focus. America's proper role in Asia is as a balancing wheel, engaged robustly with China, Japan, South Korea, India, and Southeast Asia. We need to deal honestly with China on important issues that divide us, including human rights, sensible currency policies, and China's inadequate protection of intellectual property. But as we navigate the crosswinds blowing between China and Japan, Japan and South Korea and elsewhere, we must avoid the temptation of playing with balance of power politics. We need not pit Japan against China, for example, as a device to keep China contained. If we create the perception that we are seeking to encircle China or treat China as an emerging enemy, we will create a self-fulfilling prophecy, when in fact we need China not only economically, but to help secure regional stability. We simply haven't built the economic or political arrangements to manage this increasingly high-stakes relationship. And in the meantime, protectionist forces are on the rise again in Washington. We're left with a power vacuum in the United States at a time when China is gaining power, influence, and confidence. I fear a very counterproductive confrontation unless both sides recognize the dangers. The Chinese act proactively to diffuse the more sharp-edged grievances, and the United States resharpens our competitive edge when four engineers are graduating from Chinese schools for every one that is graduating from an American school. A fourth key area where we need to do more, and where Secretary Christopher left such a worthy legacy, is dealing with regional flashpoints today, especially between Israel and the Palestinians, where Arafat's death, Mohammed Abbas's election, and Prime Minister Sharon's decision to pull out of Gaza has created a sliver of hope. Most Israelis understand that military action alone cannot bring lasting security. Meanwhile, most Palestinians now agree that the strategy of terror has been suicidal for them. Mahmoud Abbas, known to his people as Abu Mazen, has declared the Intifada to be over, an intent that will be tested with time. But if this moment is hopeful, it is also fragile. On the Israeli side, Prime Minister Sharon is bitterly, even violently opposed by settlers determined to kill his Gaza withdrawal plan. On the Palestinian side, President Abbas lacks an historical, charismatic claim to, to the allegiance of his people. There's a gap between what he can deliver and what Israel and the roadmap demand that he confront violent terror, take on those groups, and take them out. To be sure, we've seen some encouraging initial steps on both sides, 
But these parallel steps, as welcome as they are, will advance things only so far. Extremists on both sides will try to sabotage progress as they have done in the past. And the stakes are huge, because if President Abbas does not succeed, it will be at least another generation before there's a chance for another moderate leader with whom Israelis can re-engage on a two-state solution. The corner will only be turned when both sides take on some tough issues. As Israel proceeds with what will be a painful and difficult withdrawal from Gaza, it has to ensure that the message is Gaza first, not Gaza last. Depending on Palestinian adherence to an end to violence, there must be political re-engagement toward a comprehensive peace. In the meantime, the Israeli leadership will have to be sufficiently forward-leaning with the Palestinians so that President Abbas acquires the public support to act. Palestinian officials, meanwhile, to fulfill their people's dreams of democracy, opportunity, and a decent, normal life, must dismantle the militant groups in their midst. I'm afraid these things will not happen on their own. They are not self-executing. The United States must be actively engaged. I welcome the appointment of Jim Wolfenson from the World Bank to be economic coordinator for the Gaza transition. I have tremendous respect for his abilities, but I hope his mandate is to make not is, is mandate is to make the Gaza withdrawal his first priority, but not his only priority. Because unless we devote some serious time and attention to this process, this moment will merely be a pause, an interval between one phase of war and the next. We can and must encourage both sides to fulfill their obligations and try to build the sort of engagement that ultimately leads the way back to political negotiations and peace. The final set of challenges bearing down on us are threats that are truly global in scope, like AIDS and climate change. We cannot escape the devastation of hesitation. We learned on 9-11 that not even Manhattan is an island, that the American people can be directly and personally threatened by forces that accumulate far beyond our shores. Global AIDS is a crisis of epic proportions. It killed more than 3 million people last year. 125 more people have died from AIDS since I began speaking some 30 minutes ago. 125 people in 30 minutes. Worse still, it kills people in the prime of their lives, robbing societies of their labor force, children of their parents, and the epidemic has yet to peak in a number of populous countries like India, China, and Russia. I'm proud the United States has been a leader on this issue and that the political differences and that political differences have not deterred us from taking action on AIDS. But the fact is, right now the world is still losing the battle against HIV. More must be done to get preemptive education and life-saving medicines into needy people's hands. And America has to set the bar even higher than we already have. As for climate change, 
Denial may be a river in Egypt, but it is not a strategy for addressing our future. Seven of the ten warmest years of the 20th century occurred in the 1990s. I am not a statistician, but tell me that's a coincidence. And we're seeing the effects in rising sea levels, receding glaciers, more extreme weather patterns. Right now, the United States, with 5% of the world's population, accounts for about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions. The answer is not to turn our backs on international efforts like Kyoto. We can't fix the problem if we're outside the tent. We need to re-engage with others and adopt achievable CO2 limits here in the United States, which also could diminish our dangerous dependence on foreign oil. Again, we cannot wait until our immediate crisis uh, is upon us. To paraphrase, to paraphrase President Kennedy, in this case, a rising tide will sink all the boats. These five issues are serious challenges to our security and well-being. They deserve, in my judgment, more time and attention than we have been devoting to them in recent years. But there's an underlying problem with which we must come to grips, one that affects every effort we make to advance our interests around the world. I'm talking about restoring America's global standing. I agree with Elliot Cohn, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal last year that U.S. foreign policy today has two great strengths, backbone and clarity of vision. But be, to be most effective, clarity of vision must have an element of peripheral vision, too. We need, to we need to take stock of what others think and how we are perceived, because America cannot go it alone in a world where challenges are global and solutions necessarily must be cooperative. There's a difference between staying the course and moving forward. Being rigid is not the same as being right. And even a policy vision as idealistic as transforming the world to democracy will fail if it is perceived as arrogant or seen as an effort to impose our will on others. One size does not fit all in the world, in a world of dynamic diversity. Surveys show that anti-Americanism is deeper and broader than at any time in modern history, especially in the Muslim world, but also among our allies. Large majorities believe the United States does not consider their country's interests when making foreign policy and also that we do not do enough to help solve the world's problems. And paradoxically, many of the pro-democracy movements in the Middle East and elsewhere are vocally anti-American. As one regional scholar put it, one of the only consistent policy lines put forward by the remarkably diverse opposition movement in Egypt is its objection to U.S. policy. If we don't engage more actively on the issues that matter most to the people of the region, like peace and economic development, we may find out that when the wind of freedom blows through the Middle East, it carries to power regimes that are radical and more anti-American. My point is not that we should apologize for our power or compromise on our principles. Throughout our history, our strength has 
more often been harnessed to good than to ill. We must preserve it. But we must also remember that there is a difference between our power and our authority. Power is the ability to compel by force and sanctions. And there are times when we must use it, for there will always be interests and values worth fighting for. But authority is the ability to lead and derives from something different than our power, what we stand for, how we treat others, and whether we help the rest of the world achieve the peace, prosperity, and progress Americans want for themselves. I'll never forget when we went to Camp David for one last try at forging a Middle East peace at the end of the Clinton administration. We didn't know whether we would succeed or not, we were determined to give it everything we had. And as we flew to Camp David, what was sure to be a difficult summit, the president said, we're either going to make peace happen or at least we're going to get caught trying, especially at a time when America is using the hard edge of our power in Afghanistan and Iraq. Our, ne our nation needs to get caught trying to make a difference on the broader agenda of humanity's well-being from promoting peace in troubled regions, to fighting poverty and deadly disease, to doing our part to protect the environment for future generations. It is not enough for a great power to be defined by what we are against. To lead in the global age, we must show the world what America is for. I believe we can do that again as we have throughout the proudest moments of our past. This week, President Bush will honor the 60th anniversary of our victory in World War II. That generation's courage and foresight brought not only victory in war, just as important, their vision and commitment secured the peace that followed and an age of unparalleled progress and prosperity for America and its allies. If we summon that same strength and vision today, if we are unrelenting but not overreaching, if we stand for something larger than ourselves and inspire our friends to our side, Americans will stay together, the world will come together, and the road ahead will lead us to an even brighter horizon. Thank you very much. Blacker. It's late. It's been a long day, uh, even a longer day for Mr. Berger. He has graciously agreed to take uh, several questions before um, I offer up a few closing words. So the microphones are open. I encourage you to take advantage of that fact. And if I keep talking so that you can formulate a question in your head that you regard as appropriate to ask Mr. Berger, then I'm sure someone will begin talking. Uh, if not, I'll call on one of my students. So, uh, yes, Larry.
any visible evidence of the kind of bipartisanship in foreign policy that we had in the immediate aftermath of World War II that enabled us to gather together around one big common threat, but for a number of common purposes in the world. And I'm wondering if you could reflect from your own experience, uh, eight years in government most recently in making our foreign policy, on why this has happened. And very specifically, you know, to take one example that you mentioned, we have an initiative of President Bush, the Millennium Challenge account, which ought to, I mean, it's excited your enthusiasm to some extent. It should excite the enthusiasm of Democrats. I mean, you will concede this is something far beyond what President Clinton did Absolutely. in terms of expanding uh, foreign aid. Why aren't Democrats rallying behind it? Well, it's a very good question, and, and, and there's no simple answer to um, the fundamental question, which is why has there been such a disintegration of bipartisanship generally in Washington and specifically uh, on foreign policy? It has to do, I think, with a lot of things. It has to do with the way we finance campaigns. I think it has to do with the way we redistrict congressional districts so that the Republican districts are more Republican than the Democratic districts are more democratic, and people don't have to move to the middle uh, in order to, to win. They move to the, to the extremes. Um, uh, the American people have tried divided government. Well, we had Republican Congresses and a Democratic president. They've tried united government. We've got a Republican president and a Republican Congress, and we seem to have the same kind of uh, intense bitterness. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I think ultimately it will take uh, the leadership of president and the leaders of the Congress, uh, leaders of the Congress, uh, to to rise above it. Uh, the Millennium Challenge account. Why is it being cut? It's being cut because we have a gigantic budget deficit, and everything is being cut except defense and homeland security and money for Iraq. Um, one can argue about whether that's that's a good fiscal policy or not. I happen to think it's not a particularly good fiscal or uh, domestic or foreign policy. But that's part of the reason why there's no constituency for foreign assistance. So it's easy to cut it. Um, but it's groups like this that change that equation. Alan Weiner. Thank you for your remarks. Um, it's great to have you here at this event. Um, one of the points that you made concerned the uh, change in the geopolitical tectonics and the potential change in relationship with the United States, and as well, I think one might think about the changing relations with the other great powers. On the other hand, it seems to me that there are potentially shared interests of the great powers with respect to some of the current security threats that we face, responding to WMD proliferation, responding to terrorism, particularly Islamist terrorism. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the extent to which uh, the, in the changing sort of geopolitical structure, there is enhanced basis for cooperation with our permanent five colleagues in the Security Council, or whether the increasing potential for rivalry uh, between us and China in particular, and the Europeans on the other hand, might diminish the potential for cooperating with respect to contemporary security threats. Well, well I hope that it ultimately enhances the, the uh, momentum for cooperation. In, we're, we're, we're concerned about the rise of power in, say, China uh, or elsewhere. 
But the real danger to us comes not from the powerful, but from the weak. Um, uh, it's, it's not the forces of integration, it's the forces of disintegration that threaten uh, our peace and stability, whether that's breeding grounds for terrorism or disease or, uh, or instability. Um, and I do think that, that um, there is common cause between... And certainly, uh, Putin understands terrorism. Uh, the, the Chinese, uh, uh, at some point, have to understand that they've got a lot of unhappy people out in uh, western China, uh, who, uh, and elsewhere in China, for that, for that matter, um, who uh, can be uh, a threat to the stability of the regime. And I think we have to uh, rally people behind those common issues. In terms of Asia, what worries me is, in the, in the 90s, we put a great deal of emphasis in something called APEC, which you're familiar with out here, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation. It was never made any sense, had no noun. But um, uh, it, was, it was looking at the region as a Pacific basin, the countries of North America and the countries of, of the Asian Pacific region together would form, for example, a free trade area by the year 2020. That's atrophied. And now we're hearing more and more talk about a, an Asian free trade agreement, which would include Southeast Asia, China, India, and Japan. Uh, it would be larger than any economy, I think, in the world. Um, and so I think we've got to be more engaged in the Pacific so that we restore the sense, again, of a common Asia, just as there's a, there's a transatlantic alliance, that there's a trans-Pacific commonality of interests, um, and rather than, than the formulation of rigid regional blocks, which I think would be very dangerous. Are you on your way to the mic, Jane? Jane Wales. Um, okay. 60 years ago, in a sort of a burst of innovation, we developed a whole bunch of new institutions for international governance. Uh, World Bank, uh, the United Nations. I'm wondering if you have thoughts as to what sorts of institutions we need for addressing the kinds of transnational dangers that you pointed to today. And I, I note that Steve Stedman is here having done a really magnificent report for the Secretary General on threats and challenges. You might comment on that as well. Well, I think, I think that uh, part of the answer lies there. I think... Um, we should, instead of being, being derisive of the UN, um, and obviously we have to investigate past abuses, but being preoccupied with uh, scandal um, and appointing someone to be uh, ambassador who is not friendly to the institution, uh, I think we should be deeply engaged in trying to reform the United Nations. It is, a, in many ways, an antiquated... Uh, institution. It does some things very well. It does other things very poorly. Peacekeeping, for example. We've had six peacekeeping operations in the last decade, and every time we have a peacekeeping um, mission in, in East Timor or Kosovo or Bosnia, we start again. We reinvent it from whole cloth. There's no NATO of peacekeeping, uh, a preassembled package of resources that can be brought together quickly in a post-conflict or failed state situation um, uh, with experienced people who have, understand what their jobs are. 
So I think just the starting point um, would be, and I think I think I don't I think there'd be support for this among the American people. Uh, would be to, to to lend our energy, not not simply to using the UN as a as a uh, punching bag, but to uh, with our allies. Uh, bring that institution into the 21st century. Zach Levine, last question. Uh, thank you, Mr. Berger, for truly inspiring remarks. Um, you mentioned the need to more proactively shape our relationship with China and the future of that relationship and avoid a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of hostility with China. Um, what kind of political and economic r- arrangements can we pursue to be more proactively shaping that future? One of the things that has uh, come up on us very quickly is the um, rising protectionist anti-China sentiment in the Congress. This is not something uh, I, I would lay in the, in, at, the, at the footstep of the administration, but uh, of, the, of Congress. Suddenly, we've, we've watched China grow for this last decade. We went through a period of uh, of uh, mesm- being mesmerized by this economic miracle. Suddenly, China now has an economy that is competing with ours, uh, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. And it has given forth a, a firestorm in the Congress, um, a bill to impose a 27.5% tariff on all Chinese goods the United States, unless the Chinese stopped manipulating their currency, was got 67 votes in the United States Senate last month. Now, it was not, did not become law because of a procedural matter, and it will come up again in July as a standalone bill. But 67 votes in the Senate, which is generally considered to be less uh, chauvinistic than the House, uh, is a wake-up call. China's got some issues it has to address, as I mentioned in my speech. They are abusing intellectual property. They do, I think, need to revise their peg uh, of the currency. Um, there, there are uh, certainly problems in, the, in, in their growth model. But it is, we are playing with fire. And I fear that um, if, if this continues to escalate, uh, we will be in a trade war with China. Um, that will spill over from North Korea to the $200 billion of treasury bills that the Chinese are buying uh, to finance our debt uh, to a whole host of other issues uh, that we won't be too happy about. So I, I think um, cooler heads need to prevail, and we need, we need to be tough with the Chinese, but we, we, we need to, to... It's almost like we're nostalgic for an enemy. Um, and for a little while, Philip was able to get us to focus on the real enemy, which is al-Qaeda and the jihadists. But the, that, that uh, uh, interest level is waning a bit, I'm afraid. Um, and we now are erecting China as uh, the new emerging threat. Uh, and I think it's something we need to be very, very watchful about. Sandy, thank you very, very much for being with us. You will, I hope, uh, 
for, forgive me for being um, somewhat reluctant to draw this day and this evening to a close. I think it's been uh, just an outstanding day. Uh, and, and as I uh, ring it to its conclusion, I do want to uh, extend uh, my personal thanks to um, a small group of folks, but a key group of folks, to Klaus Bergman, to Evelyn Kelsey, to Mary Ellen Horvath, Catherine Christian, Johanna Wee, and all the SIIS volunteers who put this program together. You guys have just done a sensational job. I also want to thank uh, all the presenters and panelists today uh, from the plenary sessions this morning and here in particular. Um, I want to thank Hans Blix and uh, Paul Collier and, of course, uh, our extraordinary keynotes, Phil Zelikow and Sandy Berger. Uh, I know it's a long trip out. I know there are other ways you guys could spend your time, but it's just been terrific having you here with us today. A special thanks to, to uh, John Hennessy and to Bert McMurtry uh, for being with us uh, all day effectively and for the strong and consistent leadership that they provide Stanford University. And a final thanks to all of you, everyone in this room, uh, for helping to make this first International Day at Stanford uh, indeed a memorable day, a memorable day. So thank you very much and good night. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.